Well, good morning. It is certainly good to be with you all today. It's, uh, it's hard to overemphasize to you how good it is for me to be here. It has been uh, several years since I have been in a role like this, uh, and to be back doing this, this thing today in this place and this time with you, um, I can't really overstate how excited I am to be here, and I, I hope that you are excited to be here as well. Um, this morning, we are going to be looking at a passage from Peter. It's First Peter, from the second chapter. And if you remember last week, Caleb taught us on his second letter. And before we get into the scripture for today, I want to give you just a little bit of context. Peter is writing his letter to uh, the diaspora. My translation says he's writing to the dispersion. Diaspora is a fancy word that refers to the Jews that had been scattered throughout the region. If you know about the history of Israel, you know that a number of foreign powers had come and conquered Israel. And over that period of time, many of those who lived in Jerusalem and in Israel had dispersed or scattered throughout the entire region. So up into areas of what was in the first century Rome, um, and the early churches, as we know, Paul and the other apostles went throughout those lands establishing churches. And Peter is in this letter writing to a whole host of those churches. So whereas a lot of Paul's letters have names to particular churches, this is a general letter written to many churches within that dispersion. In his first chapter, Paul is giving instructions to his church um, and that carries over into the second chapter that we're going to be looking at today. And what he's doing in those two is identifying for them or providing for them their identity in Christ. He wants to make very clear to them what it means to be a people of God, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a church in their time and place. And as you can imagine, that obviously has implications for what it means for us to be that. And in that first chapter, he gives them four particular instructions. And he prefaces it by saying, that he wants them to prepare their minds for action. And, he's, and in saying that, he tips his hand that what he needs for his churches to do is to understand that to be the church is to be a church of action. That to be the church is not to just sit around and talk or mentally give ascension to propositions. What it means for the church to be the church, the body of Christ, is to go forth into the world in action. And in giving these four instructions, the first he says is for them to focus on grace. And it's not just a random event that he says that that is the first thing he wants them to do. It is actually in focusing on the grace that we have been given through Christ by God that we then are able to do the others. If you remember what Caleb taught us last week, there is sort of a logical progression in Peter's thought. And, and Caleb talked us through six or eight different items. And if you missed that, please go back and listen to it because it does uh, actually map very well onto what Peter has to say in this, this first chapter. Once you understand at least a little bit, the grace that you've been given to God, Peter then goes on and says that he would instruct you to be holy. And so that right living flows from an understanding of the grace that you've received. It is, it is our response to God that we would live rightly. And then he says that we ought to love one another from a pure heart. And then finally and fourthly, he says that we ought to crave spiritual milk. And whereas last week Caleb taught how the list that was in Second Peter is sort of a progression, one leads to the other. These do that, but they also feed off of each other so that the more you learn, the more knowledge you gain about God, the more you understand grace, the more you are able to live in accordance with his will, the more we are able to love one another. And so they all work together. And so he has laid that out 
um, as we come to our scripture for today. And we will read that now. It is the second chapter. We're looking at verses 4 through 10 today. He says, beginning in the fourth verse, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. We're going to look at the different pieces of this. Peter has taken a number, four or five different passages from the Old Testament and put them together here. These actually are not Peter's own words. They come from uh, the Old Testament. And so we're going to take some time looking at that. One of the disciplines that is good to get in the habit of using is whenever you see a quote from the Old Testament, go back and read where that comes from. Many times the writers are attempting to call to mind what was going on in the Old Testament situation in the ultimate contest, context. Excuse me. If we think about who Peter's writing to, and we go back to understand that he's writing to the churches in the dispersion, which at this point are both Jews and Gentiles, but any Jewish reader that he's writing to knows these stories very well. In fact, when the Jews were young, as they went off to be trained in the ways of their religion, many of them, most of them, would have memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Those that showed promise would have gone on to memorize the rest of the entire Old Testament. So that if you were a rabbi or became a disciple of a rabbi, when you read something that John or Paul or another writer writes from the Old Testament, when I read, I think, oh, that's in the Old Testament. I kind of know that story. When they read, they know exactly where it's from. They hear those words, and they know because they can spout it off like that. And so it's important for us as 21st century readers to go back and do the hard work of understanding what that context was so that we can allow it then to inform our understanding of what these New Testament writers are saying. And so we're going to spend some time today doing that. We're actually going to begin with the last, verse 10. And this is a direct reference to the prophet Hosea. If you know anything about Hosea, he is one of the minor prophets. There are 12 of them in the Old Testament. And they are minor not in importance, only minor in the amount of work that they did. So when you look at their books, they're shorter than, say, Isaiah, which is one of the major prophets. He was working and writing during the time known as the Divided Kingdom. If you look at this map, you'll see a blue section and an orange or yellow section. Um, the, the blue one is the northern kingdom, which is known as, as Israel. The, the southern one is the southern kingdom, and it is known as Judah. If you look up into the right corner, you'll see where it says Assyrian Empire. And at the time that Hosea is writing and the time that Isaiah is writing, and we're going to get to Isaiah here in a few minutes, 
We are in what's known as the Assyrian crisis. The Assyrian empire has become one of the dominant powers in the world, and they are pushing in on Israel. And they will eventually conquer that northern kingdom. But the moment that Hosea is writing and prophesying, they have not yet. And so he, we think, is actually residing in the southern kingdom, but writing to that northern kingdom. And God gives him a very interesting and particular task. Does anyone know what Hosea was called to do? Yes. Yeah, yeah. If, for those of you who online or if you didn't hear that, uh, he said he was called to marry a prostitute. And so we're going to get to read this, and, and I just want to say these are God's words. These are not mine, so be, don't shoot the messenger. Um, but in this, the first chapter of Hosea, in the second verse, we would read, he says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so if you know much about the way prophets typically function, they were sent to call Israel back to the love of their God. And they often had strong words, which Hosea has here, for Israel to try to get them, and in fact, in some cases, shock them back into a right relationship with God. And at this time, as Hosea writes, Israel has divided, they've split, they've walked away, and his message for the northern kingdom, and in fact, all of Israel, but particularly the northern kingdom, is that you have lost your first love. And so... As God instructs him to do, he goes and he finds a woman named Gomer, who is a prostitute, and he marries her. And that is to be a physical, tangible reminder or example for Israel to look at that says, this is what you've done. You have entered into an unfaithful relationship with God. You have been unfaithful. You have cheated on your Lord. You have cheated on your God. But God goes on further beyond that and says, not only do I want you to marry Gomer, I want you to go on and have children with Gomer. And he gives a couple instructions as far as what is to come of those children. And he gives uh, Hosea an instruction. They will have three children. The first will be a son. His name is Jezreel. We're not going to talk about Jezreel today because he doesn't bear directly on what Peter has to say, but Go back and read. He's, in, he's, he's an interesting case study. The second is a daughter. And it says, she conceived again and bore a daughter, she being Gomer. And he, God, said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more show mercy on the house of Israel, nor will I forgive them in any way. Lo-Ruhamah means no mercy. Okay? Keep that in mind. Then she goes on to have a second son. It says, And she weaned Lo-Ruhamah and conceived and bore a son. And he said, Call his name Loami, which means not my people, and I will not be yours. I will not be your God. And so what, this, what Hosea's situation, what he's done, he's gone and married a prostitute. He's entered into this unfaithful relationship as a symbol of what Israel is doing to God. And out of that, out of that relationship is born no mercy and not my people. And so it's a, again, a physical thing that Israel can look at by which and through which God says, you have been unfaithful to me, you have cheated on me, and as a result, you now no longer receive my mercy and you are no longer my people. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that the Assyrian Empire is going to conquer the northern kingdom, and then several hundred years, a couple hundred years later, Babylon is coming, and they're going to conquer Israel itself. And they will very tangibly and really no longer be a people. They will be exiled. Prophets are also often called not only to be critical of Israel, 
to call them back to a right relationship with God, but they often remind Israel of God's covenant faithfulness and his promises contingent upon their being faithful within that covenant. Covenant, that's how covenant works. God sets out responsibilities of the people, and if they live up to that, they get the blessing. God, however, will be faithful. It may be that a generation or two or three or four, and sometimes more than that, are not faithful, and they must live outside of the blessing. But God always promises in the end to be faithful. And he does that here. Through Hosea, these are the words of God. It says, And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. On that day I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow him for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on Lo-Ruhamah. And I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The last bit there, if we translate that name, it's the names of those children. It says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. So that when we come to the, the last verse of today, and Peter writes, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We in the 21st century will read that and think, oh, we're Gentiles. Once we weren't God's people. Once we were not living in a relationship of grace and mercy. But now we are because of what Jesus. That is absolutely true. But to, but to Peter's readers of the first century who were Jewish and steeped in the history of Israel, they understand what Peter is saying is that the promises of God have been fulfilled. That God has brought about his faithful covenant. We're going to skip back up to the top now, and we're going to walk through a number of other Old Testament references. The first comes from Exodus. In the beginning here, we read that Peter says that we ought to let ourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, an Old Testament reference, as I said, it's Exodus. It's chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. At this moment, Israel has come out of Egypt. They have come to Mount Sinai. Moses has ascended the mountain to meet with God. And before getting the, old, or the Ten Commandments, Moses hears these words to give to his people. God says to his people, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And if you're paying attention, you realize that Peter has used those ideas and rephrased them ever so slightly in his uh, in his letter here, and we're going to get to exactly why here in a minute. Um, but also bear in mind that for the nation of Israel, Exodus, the Exodus story, together with the return from exile from Babylon, are what we would consider myths. And I don't use that term to mean that they are not true stories. What I mean is they are a narrative that gives identity and forms the life of the people that believe that story. And so the exile, the exile narrative of Babylon and the Exodus narrative coming out of Egypt are formative. They, they give the nation of Israel identity. And so for Peter to use that phrase coming out of that context is 
to say to them and to call to mind that they are a people that is called out by God. They are God's holy nation. And he is here as he talks about the fact that God has made good on his promises, reminding and again calling to mind that entire context. He then also uses a passage from Isaiah 28. Isaiah, um, if, you, if you know Isaiah or you know the book of Isaiah, um, it's a long book. I, I, I mentioned earlier that it is one of the major prophets. And it's actually three different people writing. The first is Isaiah, the, the, the man we know as Isaiah. The second is a, a prophet or, or disciple of his that was writing. Isaiah writes at the same time Hosea does. So first Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, are written during the period of crisis prior to exile. The second Isaiah is written during the time of exile, and third Isaiah is written by a third prophet as they begin to come back. But the scripture that Peter uses comes from that first Isaiah, so it's, it's during the time when the Assyrian crisis is going on, the same time which Hosea is writing. And it says, See, I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, one who trusts will not panic. And you can see that Peter has lifted word for word almost that scripture and used it here. This comes in a string of Isaiah reiterating God's promises to which he will be faithful through the covenant to Israel. The next one that Peter uses comes from Psalms. It's Psalm 118, and it's verse 22. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is one to be very wary of or aware of. Um, and the reason for that is that it shows up all over the New Testament. This is actually crucial to Jesus' own self-understanding. A number of times when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite come and attack him and ask him questions and try to understand why is it that you do what you do or how is it that you do what you do, why should we listen to you, Jesus uses this scripture in response, basically telling them, you're not going to get it, you're going to reject me, but ultimately it is upon me which the church, the, the promises will come to fruition. Um, so he uses it, I can think off the top of my head, of, of two times. Um, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and the disciples after Pentecost have gone to the temple to teach. And as they do, we're told a story where they walk into the temple, they find a crippled beggar, they take a moment, they stop, they speak with him, they look him in the eyes and they heal him. And then they proceed into the temple to teach about this Jesus character who the religious leaders are not so happy. Remember, they've crucified him. They're not happy that people are still around talking about this guy. And so they get so upset that they arrest Peter and the disciples. And then they put them through an interrogation. And in asking, by what authority do you heal and you teach, Peter lists this verse, this passage from Psalms, which Jesus himself had used, to reiterate the fact that the one that you rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The one that you, you crucified has become the foundation of the new reality that we live in and that we preach. And then Peter again here in this letter uses it. And then the final verse that he lifts it comes from Isaiah chapter 8. In speaking of the one that will come, he says, He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against. For both houses of Israel, he will become a rock one stumbles over. In the time prior to the second temple, if you know the history of Israel and the, the, the temples, there was initially the tabernacle, which the, Egypt, or the Israelites 
built and carried with them through the, the wandering moments until they came into Israel. Then David asks God to build a house, and he builds a first temple. And then when the Babylonian conquest happens in the 6th century, the temple is destroyed. And these passages about the cornerstone initially were thought to be about a physical cornerstone. If you read the rabbinic literature from that time, you read that they are anticipating an actual building of a new temple. As Israel comes back from Babylon and they reestablish themselves in the land of Israel, they build that second temple. And in the first century, that temple is still being built for hundreds of years that are working on it. And one of the reasons Jesus lashes out against the temple, if you remember the clearing of the courts narrative, um, is because it has become this ostentatious thing that it was never meant to be. But the thing that weighs heavily on the lives of and minds of the Jews, the Israelites, is that when the tabernacle was built, and when the first temple was consecrated, we read the moment at which God descends upon that structure. We read of his Shekinah glory descending and filling the temple. For them, the temple is the place where God lives. That event has never happened for the second temple. So that by, when, by the time the first century rolls around and Jesus comes on the scene, they're back in the land. They, they have rebuilt their temple, but they are not God's people in the sense that they would hope to be and were promised to be. The Roman Empire now rules them, and God does not live in their midst. And so they are still waiting for that to happen. And so while they have a physical building, they do not have God's presence. And so the cornerstone imagery begins to be understood as a person, as the Messiah, the language from apocalyptic prophecy of Daniel and Ezekiel, the son of man, gets melded with the stone imagery so that by the time Jesus shows up, what they're talking about when they talk about cornerstone is the coming Messiah. And so Peter uses all of that together in our scripture today to talk about building something. What is it that he's talking about building or that is being built? A nation, the church, right? In, in, in the opening, he says, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Right? So he's, it, all, both of those answers are correct. Right? He's, he's building this new nation. Christ is building a new nation. He's building a house. He's building the new true temple. Remember, uh, Christ talks about being, uh, having the temple torn down and being rebuilt in three days. And to the people, he, they think he's crazy. But we know, and the disciples come to find out, what he's talking about is actually himself, that he will be destroyed. But when he comes back to life, when he's resurrected, this new spiritual temple, the people themselves will be built. And Peter says that we ought to be, let ourselves be like spiritual stones built into that temple. And so this would be the moment when we would say that the church is not a building, right? The church is a people, which is a message that we've heard over and over, I'm sure, a number of times. And if we ended there, we would probably be a little disappointed with me. I would be disappointed with me. Um, so the question then becomes, okay, what is the point of all of that? You might be able to read through the scripture yourself and deduce most of that just from the words. I mentioned earlier that we're going to return to the, the fourth verse in which Peter says that we ought to let ourselves be built into 
a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices. And we, we said that's a, that's a lift from Exodus. It calls back to the moment when God gives the words to Moses for the nation of Israel. And I'd, I mentioned that he tweaks them a little bit. And what P- Peter has done here is he has called out what I'll call today the, the big three, the three pillars of Judaism. For Judaism, they are a people of temple worship, and the reason for that, if remember, the temple is the place where who lives? Let me say it louder. God. God lives in the temple, all right? So it's crucial. Temple is crucial. And that's why they're waiting with bated breath. They've been waiting for generations, 500 years, for God to return to the temple. Temple is crucial and central for them. What happens in the temple other than God living there? Sacrifices, right? Sacrifices. And who administers the sacrifices? The priests. So that the, the pillars of Judaism, the sort of the three fundamental aspects, key aspects of Judaism, are the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. The temple is where God lives. The sacrifices are the means by which we maintain our relationship and connection with God. And the priesthood are the ones who administer and maintain that relationship. And what Peter is saying here is that all of that has been done away with and reimagined in light of what Christ has done. So that now we are the temple. We are to be living stones. We are at the same time a priesthood and we ought to be offering spiritual sacrifices. And as Caleb mentioned to us last week or taught us last week, in which Peter has been pointing us in the, in the passages preceding ours today, that means we live a particular way. Holy living requires something. And it is those holy lives and that life lived that becomes our spiritual sacrifice to our God. This message is ultimately what gets them in so much trouble. It was the comments about destroying the temple that really stoked the ire of the religious leaders and got Jesus crucified. It is discussions about temple and no longer needing the temple to get Stephen stoned in Acts. Because Judaism understands how revolutionary this idea truly is. The idea that we would be the temple, that God would take up residence in us, is fundamentally earth-shattering for them. For us, however, I think Peter's message has a particularly unique message. We live in a very individualistic culture. That's something we probably all heard and we sort of we know to be true, right? Um, we say often that we're self-made. We think our actions typically don't have any impact on anyone else. They're what we do, and if it does, kind of so what, right? It has seeped into the church, and we say things like, well, to become a Christian, what you need to do is to say a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. I'm not denying that that's true, but it certainly doesn't end there. We then say we need to go on and develop our spiritual walk with God. We need to develop our personal relationship with God, which again is not untrue, but it certainly is not the end. Peter's words assault our ideas of individualism, our ideas of personal relationship with God. And what he's saying is that as we become indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are, are made into a spiritual stone. We are called into a building along with each other. You can't be a church. You can't be a building. You can't be a temple if you're one stone sitting in a field. 
So the idea that, hey, I can be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church is actually utter nonsense. You can make a mental assertion to believing that Jesus was your savior, but you cannot be the church that God has called us to be by yourself. We say things like, I'm saved from hell for heaven. But what Christ's death, resurrection, his ascension and ascending of Holy Spirit does is create for us, and Paul will make this point a number of times, creates us into a new race of people, a new family, a new reality has been brought to bear in light of what has happened, and it requires that we come into community for one another. It turns out, actually, we are not saved for heaven, which is some far-off time to come at the second coming. We are actually saved into the church. Does that make sense? Many of us, having grown up in the church, come with the idea or have received the idea that you are saved and we're going to sit around and just bide our time to the moment that Jesus returns and then we're going to go to heaven. And what the New Testament writers, what the early church understood very clearly is that given what has happened on the cross and at the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, we now live into that new reality here and now. And so that it turns out when we say we're, we're not saved for heaven, but we're saved for the church, those two things actually are the exact same thing. The way we think about heaven needs to be reframed. And that, I think, is where the real power of what Peter has to say is and where I want to go next as we draw this to a close. about how Judaism understood the concepts of heaven and hell. And for them, at the creation, heaven, heaven delineates the realm or, or refers to the realm from which God rules. It's God's realm. Earth is our realm, the created realm. And at creation, those two things were perfectly aligned so that God could come into the garden and be present with Adam and Eve. And at every place in the world, those two things were overlapped. Think of them almost as two sides to the same coin. And when sin enters the world, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and take upon themselves the knowledge of good and evil, those two things are broken apart. And for centuries, that is the way the world works. The earth and the people that are in it are sort of on our own, and God is in his realm until he calls Abraham and establishes the nation of Israel. He says, through you, I will bless the world. And back to the temple, what becomes so important about tabernacle and temple is not only just that God lives there, but equally as profound as God actually be present is it, it is the place for the moment where those two things have come back together. So that what the age to come, the eschaton, when we talk about eschatology, which is the fancy word for the theology or the thinking, the learning about what will happen in the age when Jesus has come back, those two things are going to be brought back together. And if you really study what goes on in the temple, how it's laid out, how they go about offering their sacrifices, it is all a picture of what is going to happen when God fulfills his ultimate promises, and the realm of heaven and the realm of earth are completely reunified, in which no matter where you go, you cannot go, and that it is not the rule of God. And so for Israel, the temple is the place in which that reality is truly lived out. 
And so when Jesus attacks the temple and when the New Testament writers preach and write about re-understanding the temple, you can immediately now understand why that was so alarming, offensive, heretical, and why it got them killed. Because what they're attacking is the one place where the world is as it ought to be. Now take that temple theology and map it onto what Peter has said to us today. If you remember, David asks God to build God a house. David says, God, I live in a house of cedar, but you have nowhere to live. Let me build you a place. And God, in his response, he's actually a little upset at David. And he says, no, no, no. You you realize, like, I had the tabernacle. I went wherever I wanted to. From time to time, I would come and live amongst you. But I can't be put in a house. Ultimately, he acquiesces. But in his response to David, he says, I will build you a house. And that phrase becomes prophetic. Jesus will use that moment and and that idea that he is the one to build that house. And house here often means dynasty, family. Um, Think of sort of royalty that, you know, the house of Tudor or the house of such and such that becomes, um, to use our reality here, the, the, the house that is the royalty. All right, which Peter says. But as it turns out, when God says, I don't need a house, a physical house to David, I will build you a house, which he means people. What God actually means and what happens is that the people that God is going to create become the house, the temple within which he dwells. Right? So we often think about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us individually. Again, I want to attack that idea and say that it's not true. Not say that it's not true. It is very true that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But it is also true, and what Peter's driving home here, is that as we come together as a gathered body of Christ, as a global church, but also as a local church here, as a manual church, we become the body, the house within which God is, lives and is made manifest in the world which means, given the understanding that the Hebrews had about what the temple is, we, brothers and sisters, are the place within which or at which heaven meets earth. And so that it turns out as we pray, which we just did, let your kingdom come, your will be done, as on earth as it is in heaven, Skip through that. I got ahead of myself. On earth as it is in heaven, we as the church, and what Peter is saying to us and to the church throughout time is we are the agents and both the location where that happens. As we gather and worship and pray and live the lives that Peter and Paul and the writers call us to live, we become the place in which heaven meets earth. The reign of God is manifested in our action and in our lives together. I hope you understand the gravity of that reality. As I said about halfway through our discussion, if I just stop at saying the church is not a building, we are or we are the church, go be the church, 
Well, that's, that sounds nice, but it's much more profound and goes substantially deeper than that. It can't end there. What has happened in light of God's death, resurrection, ascension, and ascending of the Holy Spirit is that we have become the place where God is made manifest in the world. For whatever reason, does God need us to make himself present in the world? Absolutely not. But he has chosen to make that the reality of the church. And so as we go forward with our time together in the coming weeks and months, I'm going to ask you to start to rethink a lot about how we are the church, about how we meet, and don't hear those words and say, uh-oh, Pastor Sam's going to change everything. That's not what I'm saying, all right? A lot of what we do is good stuff, but we need to understand why it is that we do what we do. Why is building structured the way it is? Why do we have sermons and worship? And, you know, and, and I would highly recommend you take Leah up on her study about gospel-centered worship. It will be crucial and will dovetail and pair up with where we're going with teachings very well. So I highly, highly recommend you take part in that. Um, but we are certainly in a unique time, <laughs> given what's going on in our world, all the things that are going on in our world. As Caleb prayed for us earlier, we need a little bit of heaven in the midst of the chaos. And we are called to be that. For whatever reason, God makes himself present through us and by our faithful and holy living. And so I would just call you to that today. Above all of the other talking that I did, hear that message, that it is in living together in this world, trying to live out the call to love our neighbors from a pure heart, as Peter has said, remembering grace, seeking spiritual milk, seeking the knowledge that we will be able to manifest God in this place. And watch out, because if we can do that, if we can do that authentically and real and tangibly, God, I know, has amazing things in store for this place and us as a church. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that you are in our presence. We know that you are here. We know that while we sit in this beautiful church building, it is in fact us, Jesus' brothers and sisters, who are called together to be the, the dwelling, the house within which you take up residence. And we understand that it is in our right living that we become the visible and tangible expression in this world of what heaven looks like. And God, that is a tremendous responsibility and call. It goes way beyond just saying Christ is Lord. It goes, beyond, it, it goes to being the loving agents for the world around us that is hurting so much. And we see that, God, every day now, especially in the news. There are so many people for so many reasons who are hurting, that are suffering, that need your message, that need your word, but that need people to come alongside them and to love them and to show you to them. And so, God, as we end our time together today, I ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit. It is not good enough for us to say, we ought to go do this and then go try on our own power. 
for that was, is doomed to failure, God. We, we come to you, we recognize the awesome responsibility we have, and we plead with you to fill us individually and corporately with your spirit and empower us to be the church you need us to be in this time and place. We ask that in your son's name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.